Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Cook up a meal in a full kitchen, unpack and stay organized with the in-room alpha closet system, plus bring your pet and have your best friend by your side. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I know you take your mayoral salary in Bitcoin, or at least did. Is that still the case? I still do. If you were to run for U.S. president and win, you think you'd be able to get your salary in Bitcoin? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'll tell you what, that would be a heck of an innovation. I think just having a president that would want their salary in Bitcoin would be wonderful for this country. Because why? It sends a signal that the president of the United States understands the transformational nature of the technology. There are technologies that have a generational impact, the internet, cell phones, things like that. This is one of those technologies. I understand at the beginning people are afraid of it. They don't really understand it. But I promise you that as you delve more into it, it becomes easier, more intuitive. And certainly the generations that follow us, it will be simple for them. Has there ever been a technology in the history of civilization that most people weren't scared of at first? I can't think of any. I can't think of any. Francis Suarez is the mayor of Miami, and he wants to make Miami the cryptocurrency capital of America. My thesis is that we have to be on the forefront of the innovation tsunami. We're starting to see a generational passing of the baton from the baby boomer generation, which is my dad's generation, to our generation. And I think that is important for cities. Now, your dad, who was mayor of Miami as well, obviously a really accomplished and bright guy. When you first started to talk to him about blockchain and Bitcoin, what was his response? Well, you have to understand my dad's story a little bit. You know, he's a ninth of 14 kids. My dad graduated summa, mechanical engineering, full scholarship in undergrad, has two graduate degrees from Harvard. So my dad is a genius, essentially. And even he struggles understanding some of this stuff, you know, to people in his generation, it seems somewhat abstract. What does your dad call you? I'm just curious. Uh, son. <laughs> okay, so did he ever say to you, son, this sounds like total BS. <laughs> this sounds really good if you're in charge of some exchange or currency, but no, no, no. This is not something, especially from a family of elected officials, that we want to be getting involved with. It's too risky. Did he ever say anything like that? He didn't, and I'll tell you why. Because he once told me that about the internet itself. <laughs> So <laughs> once he was wrong about that, he lost a lot of credibility with me. I think he realized he can't go 0 for 2 on a major disruption like this. Francis Suarez remembers how he felt when he first heard about blockchain technology. I can remember the specific moment. I just understood very easily and very intuitively the concept of there being a decentralized system of authentication, a decentralized system of data management, and a transparency mechanism that allows anyone to see it. And this understanding has led Suarez to a deep confidence. A big part of our economy is going to be based on crypto technologies. How big do you see it becoming? Oh, I think it's going to dominate 80, 90 percent. Wait, 80, 90 percent of what? Of the total economy. Come on. Seriously? Oh, yeah. Draw that picture for me. I'm not following. Well, remember, every single company is now a tech company. And so the question is, to what extent are people going to be a byproduct of jobs that are created through these technological systems that we see? I think it's going to be a very high number. A very high number. To be fair, the entire crypto economy is stuffed with very high numbers. The billions of dollars that venture capitalists are investing in crypto and blockchain firms, the trillions of dollars that individual and institutional investors have spent bidding up Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The crypto market, it exploded in 2021. The total transaction volume grew by more than 550%. It reached 
$15.8 trillion. The general sentiment was that anyone who wasn't buying crypto was an idiot. This is the Woodstock of the metaverse. If you're here right now, it's the equivalent to being there in 1969. Although, as you may have heard, since we spoke with Mayor Suarez, there has been a reversal. Some people are calling it a crash, even a crypto winter. Tonight, a massive sell-off of cryptocurrency, erasing more than $200 billion from the entire market in a single day. One cryptocurrency, Terra USD, had been positioned as a so-called stablecoin, a blue-chip investment pegged to the U.S. dollar. But it suddenly crashed, its value dropping to nearly zero. The Wall Street Journal called the Terra crash a reminder that crypto is often little more than a casino with weak regulation and few means of recourse for the losers. Terra is based in South Korea, and prosecutors there have banned the company's employees from leaving the country while they investigate the collapse. All this chaos leaves some people, like one economist we heard from in last week's episode, with a less confident view than Mayor Suarez. There's some chance that we're in the midst of a massive speculative bubble. On today's show, the second episode in our three-part series on blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies, we will pick through the carnage of the recent crash and try to figure out where things are headed. And we'll focus on NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which have gone through their own boom and bust cycle. Yeah, most of what's for sale is terrible, absolute garbage. But amidst that garbage, there's some glory. We call it a smart contract, but we're really talking about programmable money. The glory and the garbage, the scammery and the sublime, that's coming up right now. is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything, with your host, Stephen Dubner. Vitalik, where are you geographically? I am in Montenegro right now. Just so I have it, can you say your name and what you do? I'm Vitalik Buterin. I am the founder of the Ethereum Project. If you don't know much about cryptocurrency, you probably don't know about Vitalik Buterin. But if you do, then you know that Buterin is one of the most famous people in the crypto economy and that his Ethereum platform is the second most valuable blockchain in the world after Bitcoin. In our previous episode, we heard several smart people describe what blockchains are and how they work. But I have to say, Buterin's description is more entertaining. Blockchains, they're a form of money, but they're not just a form of money. Blockchains have some properties of things like nation states and courts and even religions. So that would make Buterin not just a crypto inventor, but a central banker, a king, a judge, maybe even a priest. He certainly has fans who consider him all that and more. While the Bitcoin blockchain came first, it is primarily a database that keeps track of one thing, who owns Bitcoins. The Ethereum blockchain is essentially a database of code. It is therefore more complicated and more versatile. I talk about Bitcoin being a pocket calculator, like it's a device designed to do one thing and one thing well. And the protocols that appeared in between Bitcoin and Ethereum, things like Mastercoin, for example, as a Swiss Army knife, so like they're designed to do 12 things and 12 things reasonably well. Ethereum-style blockchains, I think of them as being like smartphones. They can do a whole bunch of things and whatever application you want to make, you write up the logic of that application as a piece of code, upload the code onto the blockchain, and you have an application. And all you need is to download a piece of code and your device has just gained a new ability. So you can keep on being able to do new things and different things without having to change the underlying infrastructure, which is amazing for making more innovation possible. And was that distinction what made you want to create Ethereum in the first place? Was it a frustration with the limited capability of Bitcoin? A frustration with the limited capabilities of things like Mastercoin, actually. I was in the Mastercoin projects before I started Ethereum. And I eventually realized that like, hey, you can fold three different features into one if you add more parameters. You can fold 10 features into one if you add a mini programming language. And I just kept on taking that train of thought and eventually got to the point where I realized, wait, just make a fully programmable system. 
What are the upsides and downsides of creating a fully programmable system? That question can't be answered now. It'll take years to play out. For now, let's try to understand how we've gotten to where we are. Bitcoin and the ensuing blockchain gold rush was invented in 2008 by someone calling themselves Satoshi Nakamoto. But very little is known about the identity of that person or people. Vitalik Buterin's biography, meanwhile, has become legend. He was born in Russia and moved with his parents to Canada when he was six. When he first heard about Bitcoin during high school, he saw its appeal, especially the fact that it was a decentralized computing system. His favorite video game, World of Warcraft, had recently weakened the powers of his favorite character. On that day, he later wrote, I realized what horrors centralized services can bring. In 2012, he enrolled at the University of Waterloo, but he didn't stay long. The eight months that I spent in university were actually very valuable to learn this really amazing level of computer science and linear algebra and background math relevance to cryptography. Soon after dropping out of college, Buterin published a white paper for the Ethereum blockchain. It praised Bitcoin, but argued that digital currency in and of itself wasn't much of an ambition. The more important part of the Bitcoin experiment, Buterin wrote, is the underlying blockchain technology, which, in his mind, had almost limitless potential. Ethereum is a really rich design space and is where we've seen a lot of interesting applications and projects built. That is Ariana Simpson. She's a partner at the huge venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. They have invested billions of dollars in tech firms like Facebook and Airbnb and, more recently, in crypto startups. Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency that really caught the mainstream eye. But Ethereum is fundamentally different in that it was really designed to be a blockchain computer in the sky that allowed developers to build different kinds of applications. Way back in the day, there was a Bitcoin developer named Mike Hearn, who was a senior engineer at Google, really, really deep tech guy. And he built a crowdfunding platform on Bitcoin, and it took him eight months to do once Ethereum was launched, you could literally build the same thing in a couple of hours. The Ethereum blockchain, like the Bitcoin blockchain, issues a native cryptocurrency or token. It's called Ether. But here again, there are some fundamental differences. Ethereum and several others like Solana and Cardano are programmable cryptocurrencies on which you can write smart contracts. That's Chris Giancarlo. He is a former chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, one of the agencies that has started to regulate the crypto economy in the U.S. Giancarlo's nickname and the title of his book is Crypto Dad. The other blockchains he mentions, Solana and Cardano, are essentially copies of Ethereum and Vitalik Buterin's biggest innovation, smart contracts. We call it a smart contract because it's actually a good analogy, but we're really talking about programmable money. A smart contract hinges on what programmers and logicians call a conditional statement or an if-then statement. If this happens, then that happens. Buterin's idea was to allow people to build that logic into a blockchain. I'll give you a really kind of fun example. Let's say you're a septuagenarian, you've got some wonderful grandchildren, you've had a successful life, you want to leave them some money. Well, from the medieval era to now, the way you do that is you go find somebody younger than you and you appoint them a trustee or an executor and you say, here's what I want done when I'm dead. Now, the only thing you've got to hold them to it is that they're trustworthy. That's why they're called a trustee. They may run off with the money. You're dead. You can't do anything about it, right? Well, what if you use programmable money instead of an executor? Let's say your instructions before you died were, provided my grandchildren get college degrees and are sober and drug-free, they each get $100,000. Then you die. Instead of going to the trustee and saying, I promise you I'm drug-free, they actually breathe into their mobile device their college degree is uploaded to the mobile device, and suddenly there's $100,000 in the mobile device. It was programmed into the money. Here's another example. I live in New Jersey. The ownership of my house is recorded in a county registry at the county courthouse that says Chris Giancarlo and his wife own this house. 
Recording that ownership on a blockchain, even a less programmable blockchain like Bitcoin, would be an upgrade over the file cabinet at the county courthouse. The breakthrough of this technology is you will be able to record to a universal ledger out of your country, around the globe, that can't be forged or changed. But Vitalik Buterin's smart contract idea extends that advantage by allowing automatic updates to the ledger. Today, when a piece of property changes hands, there is a complicated routine involving title searches and lien searches with lawyers holding money in escrow to make sure no one's getting ripped off. Theoretically, Buterin says, a smart contract could clean up that mess. A lot of those things could just be done much more easily if there was a clear on-chain thing. Now, some of those things are technically not gains from decentralization, they're gains from automation, and so you could conceivably do it with a centralized automated system. But I do think that doing things on the blockchain does have some actual benefits in terms of verifiability, authenticity, giving people the ability to independently challenge the results if the system gets hacked, for example. From the beginning, Buterin envisioned a variety of non-financial use cases for the Ethereum platform. The Ethereum white paper talks a lot about decentralized autonomous organizations. Decentralized autonomous organizations, also known as DAOs or DAOs. And, you know, these days there's like a DAO for pretty much everything. There's a DAO for life extension research. There's a DAO for Ukraine. There's like a DAO for pretty much every topic at this point. So that hasn't been very surprising to Buterin, nor have many of the financial use cases he discussed in the white paper. I talked about stable value cryptocurrencies and options and different things like that. And today that all exists. It's called DeFi. DeFi, meaning decentralized finance. And obviously the word DeFi didn't really exist until like around 2018 or 2019. But what we have now does actually feel not too far from what was envisioned there. Outside of finance, I feel like there have been more surprises. For example, NFTs have been a total surprise, right? NFT, what it stands for is non-fungible token, which is different from a fungible token. Ariana Simpson again. So, for example, you have the Ethereum blockchain and then the units of that blockchain, meaning the tokens that are native to that blockchain, are Ether. One Ether is functionally similar to another Ether, meaning they're interchangeable or fungible. Fungibility is useful if you want to use a token as a currency. One Ether is the same as another Ether. The same goes for dollars. An NFT, on the other hand, is a distinct, unique token. So it could represent a piece of digital art. And that is the type of NFT that has become most well-known and what most people think of when they think of an NFT. To date, most NFTs live on Buterin's Ethereum blockchain. And this, as he was telling us, came as a surprise. I totally did not predict that people would be like paying $3 million for a monkey and that this would be one of the use cases of the blockchain. Ah, yes. Paying $3 million for a monkey. Buterin is talking about a set of NFTs called the Bored Ape Yacht Club. They are cartoon images of apes wearing funny hats and sunglasses. Celebrities like Justin Bieber, Tom Brady, and Paris Hilton have bought and promoted them. Does it surprise you that the creator of Ethereum is also surprised about NFTs? This is worth paying attention to. If you are a blockchain or crypto skeptic, NFTs may represent the purest example of financial froth, of runaway enthusiasm. The first Ethereum-based NFTs were created in 2015, but didn't get much attention. By 2020, the conservative estimates put total NFT sales at around $83 million, and a year later, at $18 billion. A lot of that money was flowing to celebrity-hyped projects like the Bored Apes or CryptoPunks. But over the past several months, the NFT market has soured. While the NFT community itself calls it a slump, the Wall Street Journal noted that the NFT market is collapsing, citing a massive drop in trading activity. Watching the NFT space grow has been fascinating. It's like this big mixed blessing for the crypto space because like on the one hand, it's really legitimized it and it's really brought in people who are very different from the kinds of people who are in crypto before the NFT boom. But at the same time, 
there's a whole bunch of people going $3 million pictures of monkeys, WTF. I personally, I have some kind of hopes for the space. Like one of the things that's kind of excited me since the beginning is this mechanism designed for public goods. If we can somehow get $3 million monkeys where the proceeds go to giving like anti-malaria bed nets to people in Africa, that's an amazing social technology, right? I really want to try to push this toward more of that kind of stuff. We'll see. Ariana Simpson from Andreessen Horowitz is more bullish about NFTs. It just expanded the type of people who could be interested in crypto. Simpson's support shouldn't be surprising. Her firm invested nearly half a billion dollars in Yuga Labs, the developers behind the Board Ape Yacht Club. This was the first time that a lot of people who had never really gotten crypto, it clicked for them. They were like, oh, this is a unique thing that I own. Nobody else can have it. It's mine. I can move it around. I can do different things with it. Do you think that the attention paid to the first big public wave of NFTs, which seems to have very much subsided now, do you think that hurts the long-term development of more broadly applicable NFTs? Or do you think it's just one of those things that happens in the development of a new technology and it'll be forgotten in a couple of years? I don't think it was negative, nor do I think it will be forgotten. It was the biggest wave of new entrants into the space that we've seen. And as we continue to see this technology develop, that's really important because ultimately for it to reach its ultimate audience, we need to not just have a bunch of crypto nerds. (laughs) Um, I actually think right now in the mainstream conception, an NFT is a very limited set of things, whereas in reality, what we expect to see is an ever-growing and richer universe of what a non-fungible token can actually be. So you could, for example, represent a membership pass with an NFT, or you could represent a credit score with an NFT. So I'll admit my very first reaction when I came across NFTs was like, oh, this seems kind of bubbly. That's Eric Budish. He is an economist at the University of Chicago. My second reaction was more positive. I don't quite get spending a million dollars on a crypto punk, but I think it's creative and new. In our previous episode, Budish was the economist who cast shade on the Bitcoin blockchain and cryptocurrencies. I think there's some chance that we're in the midst of a massive speculative bubble that we'll look back at as sort of a tool of mania. So why is he more charitable toward NFTs? It seemed like at least a genuinely new use case. One of the things that seems neat about NFTs is you can track ownership and provenance really easily. So you can keep track of like, oh, I bought this rare Air Jordan digital image and I just sold it to you and you sold it to the next guy. That would be great for concert tickets. It kind of would eliminate fraud. Budish has done research on the market for concert tickets and other live events. We discussed this in an earlier episode, number 311. It was called, Why is the Live Event Ticket Market So Screwed Up? So why is it so screwed up? Budish says most tickets are actually underpriced because artists and sports teams don't want to be seen as greedy and they want to keep things affordable for fans. But if there is a lot of demand for a particular live event, those underpriced tickets get bought up by ticket brokers for resale. And then this fervent resale market where all of the profits from the underpriced tickets, instead of going to fans, go to ticket brokers or go to StubHub. Which means the average fan is priced out anyway, and the artists and teams don't even benefit. I think you have to let artists and sports teams ban resale or restrict resale if they want to. So you have to make it possible for Bruce Springsteen to set a $75 price for his tickets and have that ticket be something that you literally cannot resell to another human. But what if each ticket were an NFT? This would allow the artist or sports team to control that ticket from the moment it's issued until the event. So you could have a different non-fungible token for each seat in a stadium, for example. If I sell you my ticket, we could confirm the transfer You could confirm the legitimacy of my ticket. Not only would this allow the artist or sports team to capture most of the profits rather than the ticket resellers, it could also help prevent ticket fraud, which at the recent Champions League final in Paris played at least some role in a pregame disaster. The Champions League final, Liverpool versus Real Madrid, 
about 60,000 Liverpool fans show up at the game, and there's some mix of fans with real tickets, a lot of fans with fake tickets. The French government initially claimed there were 40,000 fake tickets. That number has since been walked back. It was probably closer to 3,000. Still, the fake ticket problem contributed to the general mayhem around the event. There was also some outright thuggish and criminal behavior. All of this prompted an over-the-top police response involving tear gas, arrests, and even more mayhem. And they were paper tickets that were easily enough counterfeitable. And so clearly some kind of counterfeit proof technology would be useful there. And a blockchain is a natural solution to that problem. The tokenized ticket would allow very easy verification of who owns what. It's just good data integrity. If I'm buying a ticket on the secondary market, I could confirm that I bought a legitimate one. So Eric Budish, an economist who is generally skeptical about cryptocurrencies, is provisionally enthusiastic about NFTs because he sees their anti-fraud potential. But let's be honest, there has been a ton of fraud in the NFT market itself. Consider the Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs. One was recently listed for resale on OpenSea, the biggest NFT marketplace, for $1 million. Hackers managed to buy it for $300,000. OpenSea only offered $30,000 in compensation. Another $3 million worth of Bored Apes were recently stolen in a phishing attack. Plagiarism is also a big problem. OpenSea has a tool that lets anyone mint their own NFTs, which is great for artists who want to turn their own work into a digital asset. But OpenSea admits that this tool has also been liberally used to create fraudulent and counterfeit NFTs. And there's another category of ripoff known as a rug pull. This is the digital equivalent of the old con where you sell someone a piece of swampland by showing them pictures of the new golf resort that's supposed to be built next door. So how does the NFT equivalent work? Here's an example. In January 2022, the developers of a new NFT collection called Frosties raised money by pitching investors on a video game, a huge digital community, and special merchandise for early investors. They sold out within an hour, raising more than a million dollars, the Frosties developers promptly transferred those funds to themselves and wiped all Frosties materials from the web. In 2021, these rug pull scams are estimated to have totaled nearly $3 billion. It's enough to make you think that every NFT is a scam. Coming up after the break, we talk to a real artist who's launching a real object into the NFT space. To me, it's all sculpture. The NFT space is another medium, like oil painting. And is crypto trading a smart profession? I would recommend actually learn computer science or learn economics. That's coming up right after this. Try This from The Washington Post is a new series of audio courses that takes on life's everyday challenges. I'm Christina Quinn, and I'll help you find real guidance with practical, easy enough approaches that won't feel like the advice you hear everywhere else. Each audio course will have anywhere from two to five classes on things like how to get better sleep, how to get the most out of your relationships, and even how to get out of your own way. Find Try This from The Washington Post, wherever you listen. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by The Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading The Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as business, finance, politics, and tech with articles like Open AI and the Rift at the Heart of Silicon Valley. Visit ft.com slash Freakonomics to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash Freakonomics. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Fidelity. With Fidelity Active ETFs, the investing potential is in the name, Active. Because instead of just riding the index, Fidelity Active ETFs seek to outperform it with an expert team working behind the scenes. Fueled by industry-leading expertise and robust research capabilities, Fidelity Active ETFs shift with the markets, pursue upside potential, and adapt to volatility. 
And while you can get the potential outperformance of an actively managed fund, you can still buy and sell it on your terms, just like any other ETF. Take a more, well, active approach with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. In last week's episode, we started to hear about a new NFT collection from the artist Tom Sachs. It is a model rocket project. So the rocket is nine and one quarter inches tall and about an inch in diameter. Sachs is a sculptor, a maker, and a troublemaker. His work can be found in some of the world's best museums and collections. His interest in crypto goes back a while. I was interested in cryptocurrency about a decade ago when I first heard about it, and everyone talked me out of buying Bitcoin when it was $110. Who's everybody? My accountant, my family. And they said to you what? They said it's too experimental and it's too risky because we don't know what's going to happen with that. As of this recording, Bitcoin sells for around $20,000. So yeah, Sachs has some regrets about not buying at $110. Why did he want to buy back then? Because I started to understand how it worked. The idea of decentralization, of doing commerce outside of the traditional banking system, I understood immediately its potential for changing the world, for having a peaceful revolution, for getting the money out of the institution into the hands of individuals, to not depend on this completely slanted, immoral banking system that makes the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Could I invite you to speak your mind a little bit more fully about the banking system? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's racist and classist. It's not the way I want the world to be. And my commitment in my art is not representing the world the way it is, but making the world the way I want it to be. And the most important thing that any of us can do in the NFT space is engage in it. In other words, if you make pizzas, accept cryptocurrency. If you make sculpture, find a way to do it as an NFT. And then it becomes real because money is an illusion, an illusion by which we all live and die. But it works because we all believe that piece of paper that says one on it is worth one and the one that says a hundred is worth a hundred because we all agree on it. And that's why NFT is working because enough people agree in it. But what if I say to you the fiction or the illusion of money has been around for quite a few centuries now to the point where all the systems and beliefs around it are so entrenched that you don't really have to wonder. Whereas with cryptocurrency, I'm conducting zero of my life using cryptocurrencies. And therefore, to me, it's not, quote, real. To me, it's a gated community where the gate is built by the people who stand to profit most from it. Tell me where I'm wrong there. Well, you're right in that it's new and not trusted. And trust is built only through time and experience. You're wrong in that no one's controlling the gate. The data is spread across the entire blockchain so no one can go in there and fake it. Tom Sachs didn't want to fake it as an artist either. So he tried to come up with a crypto project, an NFT project that felt worthwhile. And he did. It's called the Tom Sachs Rocket Factory. The ultimate purpose of the Rocket Factory is for the studio to engage in a project that's totally authentic to what it's been doing. The studio being Sachs's art studio in lower Manhattan, where he and his team have for years engaged in old school design and manufacture. The values of the studio that we're always promoting are the handmade. So there is a physicality to the rocket. And we're really trying to humanize this experience and make it something that's not staring at a concrete cinder block wall all day in the basement making billions on crypto, but to connect with the real world. Because if crypto is going to work, people have to feel. 
People have to have an emotional connection with it. At first glance, the Rocket Factory collection looks like any other collection of NFTs, like the Bored Ape Yacht Club or maybe even Frosties. Last summer, Saks minted 3,000 model rocket parts, more precisely, 3,000 cartoonish drawings of rocket parts, each one an NFT. 1,000 nose cones, 1,000 bodies, 1,000 tail assemblies. This is all happening via code on the Ethereum blockchain. But in this case, the virtual NFTs also had a physical component, 3,000 actual model rocket parts that corresponded with the NFTs. And Saks being Saks, the parts were hand-painted with a variety of logos of well-known brands. There are 30 different brands like Budweiser, Chanel, Trojan, Skippy, NASA, Hello Kitty. And these are chosen by you? I chose all of these brands to represent who I am. Which part of you is Hello Kitty? Hello Kitty is the sweetest part of me. (laughs) She also represents my faith because she's the ultimate merchandising icon. She has no voice. She is just perfection. She was born in London. She weighs about three apples. She's someone who's been with me since adolescence, and I love her. Okay, so people could buy these rocket parts, and there are two types of rocket they can assemble, correct? Right. So there are three parts, but you could assemble a perfect rocket, three of a kind, like three Marlboro nose cone body tail, or you could do a Franken rocket, which could be a Marlboro nose and a McDonald's body and a Budweiser tail. What would you say is more desirable, a Franken rocket or a perfect rocket? I would argue strongly for Frankens. They're way more interesting because you slam three of these brands together that don't belong together. My secret formula to success is one plus one equals a million. And choosing just the right wrong two things to put together is how you come out with magic. So while most NFT projects are purely digital, the Rocket Factory project has a physical component that leads to a process best described as transubstantiation. Because once you assemble the three parts of your NFT rocket, whether a perfect version or a Franken version, you can select a launch date, at which point the Tom Sachs studio assembles a physical version of your model rocket and launches it a few hundred feet into the sky. They film the launch, the parachute popping, the gentle return to Earth. At this point, the rocket owner can claim possession of the physical rocket. They can choose to donate it to a trophy case that is bound for a major museum. Or if they don't quite believe in transubstantiation, they can have Tom Sachs shred the physical rocket. So far, out of the more than 800 rockets that have been assembled, only 16 have gone to the shredder. Even though it's kind of a conceptual project, it has a physical manifestation that's very important. And in this age of the metaverse and virtual everything, we're really dedicated to the physicality. As NFT projects go, yours strikes me as particularly complicated and robust and involved. And I use all those words as compliments, truly. There's the physical manufacturer, there's a decorative and branding component, there's the rocket launching and quite a bit more. So I guess the question is, why go to all this trouble? Why did the Tom Sachs studio not just do another Bored Ape Yacht Club series in Tom Sachs style? Well, it's because we're idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're so right. Uh, We should have just gone the easy route. You should always do the easiest cash grab possible. We're just not wired this way. So I've read that around $30 million in value has been exchanged via Rocket Part NFTs on OpenSea since the project started. Does that sound about right? I think it's probably more like $50 million, but it depends on the value of Ethereum, which goes up and down wildly. And how much of that money is actually captured by the Tom Sachs Rocket Factory? 10%. And that's in a smart contract. Every time a rocket is traded, 10% goes back to the maker, and that's us. 
In a series we did some months ago about the art market, we discussed one of that market's greatest perversions. When an artist like Tom Sachs sells a piece for, let's say, $50,000, and that piece is later resold at auction for $5 million, the artist typically doesn't participate in that capital appreciation. In other words, they don't get a penny from the resale. In a way, that makes sense. An architect who's hired to design a building doesn't get a cut when that building is later resold. But for an artist, especially a living artist, resales can seem unfair. One major feature of a blockchain-based smart contract, whether it's for an artist like Tom Sachs or an example we heard earlier for Chris Giancarlo's grandchildren, is that the contract can be programmed to specify that a given share of a transaction goes to a given recipient. This is the first time ever that artists have shared in a secondary market. And the power of that isn't just about the money. It's about being engaged. And it's not just artists. This notion could apply to everything else. I think we're going to look back in 10 years at this space and be like, what was CryptoPunks? Like, no one's going to care because it's not going to be about art anymore. It's going to be that the artist brought the utility to other things. And it's going to be real estate or something. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's funny that it's art right now. I think we're going to look back and laugh. Hopefully they'll allow creators, whether it's journalism, music, media, or art, to retain more of the value of what they create. That is Christian Catalini. He's the founder of MIT's Crypto Economics Lab. The type of communities that are emerging around digital art could not have been sustained under old technology. And to some extent, all of these crypto assets only have value because people believe they have value and they build a community around it. So it's challenging for economists because we tend to give some of these things for granted. But if you talk to a sociologist, they'll tell you, well, of course, money is just part of your tribal affiliation. And these NFT communities that emerge are exactly the same. People converging around interests, passions, and beliefs about the future. So do you think that economists, if I'm asking you to indict yourself, essentially, do you feel that economists are in a good position to think through all these implications and especially the market designs for crypto? Or do you think that the way you're trained, you may have too much attachment to the standard system? I think you captured the essence of it, which is conditional and economists being able to take a step back and realize that some of those assumptions may be imperfect or incomplete. I do think that economics as a profession has a lot to add to this space, just to make it more robust, more resilient, more thoughtful. What would you say are the biggest misperceptions about NFTs? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around NFTs that actually resembles the early misunderstanding around Bitcoin and other crypto, which is like, why should these things even have value? I think what's challenging with NFTs today is that you do have some actors that come in and just want to ride the wave of attention and speculation. But on the other side, you have very serious founders that are trying to create something different to emancipate creators. Do you ever feel that the hype or the intense attention on cryptocurrencies as a speculative asset and now NFTs is something that many people think are Ponzi-ish or speculative or potentially fraudulent? Do you think all that attention to those elements of this new technology are hurting the larger blockchain cause generally? If you look historically, every major wave of technology did generate some frenzy, whether it's railroads or steam engines. So I don't think this is any different in that sense. It's just that we see a lot more digitally. If you had a set of startups in any field and you'd be able to see the value of their equity in real time, you'd probably say, oh, wow, solar is extremely volatile. So what's unique here is that you almost get to see under the hood. And so... That has also attracted, of course, all sort of market manipulation and bad actors that take advantage of retail investors looking for the next big thing. What would you say to a 15-year-old who decides right now to give up their education and career path to become a crypto trader? Crypto trading is extremely volatile and extremely challenging. I would recommend, actually, if you're really passionate about this space, learn computer science or learn economics and try to make a difference through your work. 
that's going to be actually a lot more profitable, I think, than trading. These markets have crushed souls before. Did you say these markets have crushed souls before? Yes. When it all crashes down to zero, hopefully they don't take it too personally. Of all the noise that's happened around the crypto revolution to date, perhaps the noisiest moment, the one that really entered the public bloodstream, was an NFT auction in March 2021. The online auction for Beeple's the first 5,000 days just wrapped up at Christie's. Final sale price, $69.3 million. That's more than most Picassos, Monets, or Warhols. Now to repeat, that's $69 million for a digital token. Shocking, insane. Who was it that paid $69 million for the NFT of a digital artwork by a previously unfamous artist known as Beeple? The buyer, it turned out, was a crypto investor named Vignesh Sundarisan, who had recently bought 20 other Beeple NFTs, bundled them together, and offered portions of the bundle for sale via a blockchain token called B20. Sundarisan kept 59% of the B20 tokens. Beeple himself owned 2%. After that historic $69 million auction purchase put Beeple's name in headlines around the world, the value of B20 tokens increased 60-fold and then plummeted. Today, they're worth almost nothing. You can understand why the average person, you maybe, would consider NFTs and perhaps all crypto assets, including cryptocurrencies, to be suspect at best and perhaps a total scam. Well, I think it's kind of like country music. That, again, is the artist Tom Sachs. You know, most of every genre is terrible. But even country music has Patsy Cline, Hank Williams, Dolly Parton, Merle Haggard. Yeah, most of what's in crypto space is terrible, absolute garbage. I think a lot of people who dismiss or dislike cryptocurrency do so because it feels scammy or hustly, as if the primary purpose is to just extract as much, quote, real money as possible. How fair or unfair is that assessment? Yes, like in anything, you can make money if that is your goal, but I can't do anything about that. <laughs> well, except try to make good ones. I think all we can ever do is do the best we can do, to have the most integrity as a artist, as a lawyer, as a broadcaster, as a storyteller. It doesn't matter what you do, it's how you do it. So this space is happening with or without me. This train's going. I want to get on it and make the space better because I can. Now, I'm looking here, Tom, at all the different brand rockets that are represented. So the strangest thing about this chart is I don't see a Freakonomics radio rocket. Is that an oversight? Yeah, absolutely. We really wanted to include Freakonomics as a rocket. We love the brand. But? The hardest thing about this project, and I took three months to lay out these 30 brands, were a lot of the ones that fell on the floor. So, Tom, do you think there's any way you could remedy this oversight? Well, I've got an idea. Yeah? Why don't we uh, launch a rocket together? <gasps> And that's how we found ourselves heading outside toward Bryant Park in the middle of Manhattan with a Franken-Rocket representing Freakonomics Radio. Although it didn't go quite as planned. I'm not running, I'm just leaving. I'm leaving, I'm leaving. I'm sorry. Next time on the show, can we finally get Tom Sachs's Freakonomics Radio Franken-Rocket NFT off the ground? And what does the crypto future look like? Crypto will take over everything and the traditional financial system will just wither. I don't think that is how the future will play out. How about DeFi? DeFi is moving so quickly, we're not totally sure what that's going to look like at the end of the day. And what about Web3? We don't want to be the person who in 1993 says, why do we need the internet? That's next week in the third and final episode in our special series about blockchain and crypto. Until then, take care of yourself. And if you can, someone else, too. 
Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. You can find our entire archive on any podcast app. This series is being produced by Ryan Kelly. Our staff also includes Neil Carruth, Gabriel Roth, Greg Rippin, Zach Lipinski, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Morgan Levy, Julie Canfer, Jasmine Klinger, Eleanor Osborne, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jacob Clementi, and Alina Cullman. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by The Hitchhikers. All the other music was composed by Luis Guerra. If you would like to read a transcript or the show notes or take a look at the underlying research of our episodes, that is all at Freakonomics.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter there, and you can leave your comments on any show. We can also be reached at radio at Freakonomics.com. Sorry about my froggy voice today. It's a summer cold. As always, thanks for listening. One of the brands threatened to sue us. That would be great news for you, though, wouldn't it? I think so. It's just time-consuming. And then once I got in touch with their lawyers and the head of their company, we had a long conversation. And by the end of it, they asked if we would be available for hire to help them develop a project about their brand in the space. And could they please purchase directly from us one of that rocket? The Freakonomics Radio Network. The hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.